Well, let me just begin by saying good morning and everybody and welcome to worship. And I want to especially greet those of you who are joining us by video right now. I'm glad you're here that we can all be connected together this way. We're in the middle of a series that we've just started, a series where we're learning to be restored to life, restored to the good and beautiful life that God intends for us, to the good and beautiful life in the way of Jesus. And it's a life, it's a journey that begins with knowing who we are, with knowing our identity as children of God who live in the unshakable kingdom of God. And knowing who we are, being set free by the Spirit of God, restored to the life that God intends for us. We started last week, Pastor Angie shared a really helpful message about learning to live in freedom from anger. And I heard from a bunch of you actually this past week how helpful that was. Today we're kind of following the script through some of Jesus' teaching in a passage in the Bible called the Sermon on the Mount. And this week we're following his teaching and we're going to be learning to live in freedom from lust. Oops, I just said lust in church. Did anybody hear that? I said that out loud. Feels like such a big word, doesn't it? Like a really loaded word. I know a lot of people these days wear like Fitbits and Apple Watch and whatever, and if we could aggregate all that data, I bet the heart rate in the room went up a little bit <laughs> when I said that just now. It's a, sort of a challenging word. And I want to give you, I'm going to start with a different word here today. It's actually a bigger word, but I think it's helpful because it's more of a picture word. It's more of a concrete word. As we talk about lust today, what we're going to start talking about is, is the process of objectification objectifying people, making people into objects, seeing them, looking at them, not so much as human beings, but reducing the amount of humanity they have and increasing the amount by which we see them as objects. This is a dangerous thing. Studies show that it's common. Our society struggles with that. All of us who are gathered here today are part of our world. We struggle with this. I saw a study recently that said that 80% of Americans admit to struggling with lust at some time in their lives. And then I saw somebody comment on that story and thought it should have a new line. 20% of Americans are liars. (laughs) Right? It's a a challenge for us in our world. I I can remember actually listening to a talk a couple of years ago, I think, that really helped me see this problem in a clearer way than I really ever had before. I was listening to a TED Talk. Have you ever listened to, you know know what TED Talks are? TED Talks are, they're these lectures that are just given by kind of thought leaders in their fields about socially interesting topics, politics, uh, technology, media, education, all kinds of different things. This was a talk, and it's actually, and there's sort of different sub-brands of TED. There's TED, there's TEDx, which is kind of more experimental. There's TED Youth, which is aimed especially at a youth and young adult audience. This was a TED Youth talk. And it was about sexual objectification. I stumbled across this talk. It was 12 and a half minutes long. And I said, I'm going to listen to that, see what they have to say. And the speaker had a number of things to say, but she began by offering some definitions. By saying, when you see images or pictures of people's bodies in media, marketing, art, it's like that's not always objectifying. Not every picture of a human being is an objectifying picture. But if you see things like this, there's a reasonable chance you're looking at something that's objectifying, where you're, you're diminishing someone's full humanity and making them more into an object. And she said, you know, if you're, if you're looking at a picture and that person's face is not even in the picture, all you're supposed to look at is their legs or their backside or their abs or whatever else, you may be invited to see them more as an object than as a person. Well, that's a good point. Or if, you, if you're looking at an advertisement, she talked a lot about marketing in particular. If you're looking at an advertisement and you see a whole bunch of bodies lined up in a row as if they were sort of all equivalent alternatives to one another, sort of like you see cans of soup on the shelf or something like that, there's a reasonable possibility that this is more of an item than a person, right? It's the process of objectification. And I gotta tell you, like, I mean, I've heard the word objectification at least a thousand times before I watched that talk. 
And for some reason, it wasn't until then that the penny kind of dropped for me. I was like, oh, someone's going from being a person to being an object. And I thought, why have I not figured that out? Why have I not seen what that's about before? So I made up a new word that would make this clearer for me. And if you think this is stupid, you don't have to ever use this again. But I thought this was helpful. Maybe it'll, maybe it'll bring it down to a level. It was helpful for me. Maybe I can bring it down to a level where it's helpful for you. What if it wasn't objectification? What if we were talking about thingification? Is that stupid? Taking people from people and making them more like things, right? And this happens in all kinds of fields of our lives. This happens in marketing, like this person was talking about. In all kinds of our mass media, entertainment, people are being turned into things. I think it happens in our human interactions, maybe in our workplaces, in our neighborhoods, in our coffee shops, the way that people look at one another. We maybe see them more as things than as people. I know that it happens in the, in the rapid rise of pornography in our culture, which is epidemic proportions. I saw a study recently that segregated this uh, study by generation and said among our youth and young adult generation, age 13 to 24, fully two-thirds of them don't see anything morally objectionable about pornography. That people are being taken from humans and being turned into things for the pleasure or the purpose of some other people, and that's not a problem. And that not only do we not see it that way two-thirds of the time, but in 96% of our conversations, we talk about pornography in neutral or approving terms. 96%. Our culture struggles with this. A lot of people who are gathered here for worship today, right now, struggle with viewing pornography or people in your life do. It's a big problem for us, the thingification of other people. Well, it's probably not news to you so far. Most of us knew that already. We're thinking about different ways to think about it. The question is, how do we get free from it? What do we do about that? The series that we're in right now called The Good and Beautiful Life leads us into what Jesus said about these topics. And I think that what we see Jesus teaching about this leads us into an insight, leads us into a, into a deeper insight into what's happening in our hearts and how we can be set free from it. So I want to share that with you this morning. And where Jesus starts his teaching on this, on lustful objectification or thingification, is really at a very kind of practical, simple, no-nonsense kind of point. This is Matthew chapter 5, verse 27. Jesus began by saying, You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. You shall not commit. Adultery is being involved in a sexual relationship with someone who is not your spouse. Now this is a fairly obvious point, right? Some of you who are here this morning, you've been the victim of adultery in a relationship and that's hurt you. And you know why Jesus said that's a bad idea. That breaks our relationships. That hurts people. Some of us who are here this morning, maybe you've been involved in an adulterous relationship and you're seeking the grace and restoration of Jesus in a new way of life. I think a lot of us, probably nearly all of us, can understand why Jesus would say that's kind of a baseline. You've heard that said before. But then he drives the diagnosis quite a bit deeper and says this in the next verse. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. That goes quite to another level, doesn't it? Now I want to make a couple observations here. The first one is, is that Jesus' audience in this context is mostly male. That's why he's saying if you look at a woman lustfully. That's not always true in Jesus' life. Jesus taught and discipled both men and women as his followers. In this case, he's speaking more directly to a male audience and talking to them about this. But I do believe that this teaching is something really that speaks to women and men alike in the 21st century. We may fall into objectifying temptations in different ways, but this teaching speaks to us all. The second thing that I want to share with you is something that honestly I have only just learned in studying this passage. I've of course read this passage a bunch before. This is in a very famous part of the Gospels. 
But there was something I learned about this teaching that I had never noticed before. As I was preparing to share with you today, I, started, I decided to look at these terms a little bit more carefully. And probably most of you know that the Bible wasn't originally written in English. The, the text of the Gospel of Matthew and all the New Testament was originally written in Greek. I said, I want to I explore that term more carefully and come to find out that the term that's translated as lustfully here in this passage, that's, that's a good translation in this context, of course. But that word isn't exactly like our English word lust. Our English word lust is really a sexual word, right? That's why you're also uncomfortable hearing me say it so many times. It's really a sexual word. But the word that's being translated here can actually be used in a whole variety of different contexts. And how it can be used was very enlightening to me. It's, it's a word for desire. It's a, a general word for strong desire. And I want to show you a couple other ways that it's used that I think are kind of enlightening for what Jesus is describing here. In some cases, it can be used in a very positive sense. In fact, Jesus used this word to describe himself. I hope that doesn't weird anybody out too much. It's in a different way. In Luke chapter 22, verse 15, Jesus was talking about sharing the Last Supper with his disciples. And he said, I have eagerly desired, that's the word, to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. A word of eager desire. It can also be used to describe kind of some other natural human cravings. Jesus told a famous parable that's come to be called the parable of the prodigal son. And you may or may not know that story, but in that story, there's a character who gets very hungry. He's very poor and is without food. And the story says he longed to fill his stomach. That's that word, he longed. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. And then there's another usage of that word that actually kind of gets into more of a, a negative implication, but still a different context. In Acts chapter 20, the apostle Paul is quoted as saying this, I have not coveted, I have not desired, I've coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. Do you see all the, all the different ways that that word is used to describe the desire to possess something or experience something, or acquire something, or have something, or use. Have you heard the last word of every one of those things? Use something, right? Like you desire a meal, or desire a thing, or desire gold, or silver, or clothing. And Jesus says, I'm telling you that when you look at a person with the desire to experience, or possess, or use that thing, you're already committing adultery with them in your heart. And it's not the same thing as committing adultery with them in your body. You're desiring the possession of somebody as a means to your ends in your heart that just hasn't found expression yet in your body. Now, one of our staff people, Lindsay Peterson, who's our worship leader here this morning, she reminded me just recently of a line that our former senior pastor, Steve Mahan, used to use sometimes, and I thought was a really great summary of this kind of teaching. He said, in our world, way too often, we are drawn to the practice of loving things and using people, when in fact, God gave us things to use and people to love, right? We're called to love people and use things, not love things and use people. And when we love people, we're not going to use them as a means to our own ends. They're not a thing to bring us pleasure, to be used for our purposes, but we're there to seek their good, to see their heart and soul and mind and life and relationships enriched and benefited. We sacrifice ourselves for their good. We love people, we don't use people. We love people and we can use things. Now, so what Jesus is describing here is a process of, of sexually or physically thingifying people, right? Seeing them as a little bit less human than they truly are and seeing them more as an object or a thing. But, but the question that we need to ask is, so how does that set us free? Like, 
How do we get somewhere with that? I don't don't think anybody probably arrived here this morning, again, thinking that we were gonna describe lust as a good thing. The question is, how do we learn to live without it? How do we learn to be set free? And I wanna share with you that I think that this word, this teaching and this insight of Jesus, I think speaks to us in our lives, maybe in some different ways, depending on the context that we're in. And I wanna speak to two of those this morning. One, I think this word speaks to us in the temptations we face to thingify other people, when, when we're the thingifiers. And this word speaks to us differently when we're the ones who are being thingified, all right? So, and in both cases, we've got some fears inside of us. In both cases, we've got some things in our hearts that need to be healed on the inside so they can find healthier expression on the outside. So let's take this in order. Let's talk first of all about the ways that we are tempted to thingify other people, right? There's a fear inside us. There's a fear inside us that letting go of the lusts to which we've become attached will reduce us, will steal pleasure from us. We're we're kind of attached to those lustful, objectifying desires. And deep down inside, a lot of us are afraid that God is holding out on us, that God is setting a boundary for us that really constrains us and constricts us and reduces us. And we don't actually believe that God's vision and God's boundaries for healthy relationships are the best for us. And so we kind of will sneak looks or sneak practices to find things that we believe are better for us than this narrow, prude, puritanical God has for us. We have a fear that God doesn't have our best interests at heart. And so we kind of are attached to our lusts. The great uh, writer, Christian writer C.S. Lewis, he gave us a picture of this. He wrote a parable of a guy, of a man who was approaching death, and he had come to be only a shell of himself, a ghost as much as a man. And he walked around with this red lizard on his shoulder. And as this ghostly shell of a man walked around with this red lizard on his shoulder that, that spoke into his ear and was the voice of lustful temptation in his life, On his way to death, this shell of a man met an angel of God. And the angel of God said to the man with the lizard on his shoulder, would you like me to make that lizard be quiet? Would you like me to silence the voice of that tempting lizard? And I said, I would like that. That voice is always speaking in my ear. It makes it hard for me to hear other people and hard for me to hear God. And so the angel reached out with his strong hand to throttle the lizard around the neck and kill it. And the man drew back as if in pain. said, nobody said anything about killing it. I just wanted you to make it quieter. We don't need anything so drastic as that. I, I, I can make it be quiet someday in the future. I can choose not to listen to that lizard so much. And the angel said, I, I don't think that that's how that's gonna work. And they went back and forth and eventually the angel got the man to relent and was about to kill the lizard. And the man said, okay, you can do it as, as, as long as it's not gonna hurt me, okay. And the angel said, oh, I didn't say it wasn't gonna hurt you. I said it wasn't gonna kill you. And finally the man allowed the angel to reach out and throttle the red lustful lizard on his shoulder and drop this withered lustful temptation onto the ground. And the man, beyond all expectation to himself, saw what he could not have foreseen. That all of a sudden he went from being a ghostly shell of himself to being a solid human being. He was being rehumanized and he stood up to a greater stature than he ever was before. He went from being a shell of himself to being a real man, a real human being. And he became humanized as he was set free not to dehumanize others. As we 
find out who we are, as we find our true identity in Christ, as we choose to trust God, that God has our best interests at heart and will give us life, and that these empty promises, these empty desires, tempt us into cheap imitations of the life and love that God has for us. When we trust God to reach in and take the red lizard and throw it on the ground, we become new people, we are set free. We are children of God, no longer slaves to fear. To be even more practical with you, does that mean that we will never face temptation anymore? Does it mean that those lustful looks will never happen in our life? It does not mean that you will not be tempted anymore, but it means that we will look differently. A, a very practically-minded Christian friend of mine said once, it's not really the first look that's the problem, it's the second look. It's the look back that's lustful, that uses somebody as a thing, that thingifies somebody, rather than looking back and seeing a human being with thoughts and fears of their own, emotions and stories and relationships, maybe parents, maybe children, dreams, talents, gifts. It's a second look. With regard to temptation, I think it was Martin Luther who said, you can't stop the birds of the air from flying over your head, but you can stop them from making a nest in your hair. There are, there are things you can do to make this easier on yourself. That as you know who you are in Christ and you want to walk away from temptation and you want to walk a new way, there are things you can do to help yourself in this. And I've had Christian friends who have done a lot of, taken a lot of different measures to do this. I know a Christian friend who he and some, some other close Christian friends and trusted relationship, they all installed the same monitoring software on their smartphones and their computers. And when websites that shouldn't be visited were visited, it emailed their friends. <laughs> Created an accountability group, right? Some of you are like, I'm not doing that. <laughs> or, maybe, or maybe some of you are like, I should do that, right? I know families that have set up a boundary that said, uh, we're free to use technology in our home, of course, it's part of life, but we're gonna do that out in the open spaces of our houses and not behind closed doors where secrets happen. Right? People do practical things. Now, now I wanna say, if you take a rules-driven approach to this, you're gonna do what people do with rules, resent them and break them. Right? But when you start at the heart, when you start with knowing who you are and believe that God has your best interests at heart, that the good and beautiful life is truly found in the way of Jesus, that you are a child of God, you are set free from this, you're no longer a slave to fear, then you can set up some appropriate boundaries that help you be who you want to be in the first place. Now, this word speaks to us in our temptations to thingify other people. It also speaks to us in our experience of being thingified. Right? Now, this is something that happens to both men and women in our world. But I think the pressure in our culture is greater on women. And I wanna to speak to that for a second. Because there is a lot of temptation, there's a lot of pressure on people and women in our society to find some of your value, to find some of your identity, to find some of your worth in what you look like. In other words, how good of an object you are. And this is a real struggle. And this can be a struggle in all different kinds of ways. It can be a struggle for you when your appearance, when you feel like your appearance is a long way away from that form of physical beauty that our world tends to idolize. And what you look in the mirror just makes you, what you see in the mirror just makes you mad and disappointed and hurt. But this is equally a struggle for anybody who looks in the mirror and thinks, hey, not half bad. <laughs> My looks are kind of like that form of beauty that the world has learned to treasure. Whether you're winning this game or losing this game, you're losing this game. 
There's no way to win at being a better object than somebody else because that is not where value comes from. But uh, there's a fear there because all of us, male or female, when we learn to find some of our value in the wrong place, even letting go of that is a very frightening thing to do. And I would like to speak a word of truth, a word of good news, gospel, hope, and meaning to all of us, whatever gender, whatever stage of life you are in. You are a child of God for Jesus' sake in whom Christ dwells and you live in the unshakable kingdom of God. Nothing about that shakes. It doesn't matter if you put on weight or lose weight. It doesn't matter what you wear. It doesn't matter what somebody thinks about you. You are a child of God in whom Christ dwells yesterday, today, and tomorrow and you live in the unshakable kingdom of God and nobody can take that away from you. You are not a thing. You are a person. At the end of that TED talk that I mentioned earlier, the woman who was giving this address, in the last 45 to 60 seconds of her talk, she did something that I don't think anybody expected. She reached up and she pulled off her fake eyelashes, <laughs> which I didn't even know were there, to be honest with you. <laughs> Just clueless male over here, right? And then she reaches down and she took a little wet wipe or something out of a pocket or out of her belt or something and began to wipe off some pretty heavy makeup that I hadn't even noticed was there. And she began to change her appearance right before us. And she dared all of us who were listening and her live audience and me a couple years later watching by video. She said, just imagine for a second, what would it be like? What if women didn't have to get up in the morning and spend an hour of their life working on hair and makeup and outfit? And instead, that, and I have no idea what the right length of time is. I don't know what, what you experience. What, what if instead they could be using that time on thinking and working, and she didn't say praying, but I'll say praying, or relating to the people in her life, or maybe just getting an extra hour of sleep and being properly rested for all the important things God has called her to that day. Or what if in the conversations and encounters and meetings or public presentations that she was gonna have that day, what if instead of having half of her cerebral power taken up by how do I look, and are my, do my clothes fit right, and how's my hair right now? What does somebody think about me? What kind of object are they seeing me as right now? Because I know they are. What if instead she and we all of any gender, of any stage of life, could be fully engaged with one another, relationally, seeing one another as full human beings, engaged with the valuable work that God has called us to do in this world? What if? And she wasn't able to say this. As far as I know, the woman isn't a follower of Jesus. I really don't know her personally at all. But I can tell you, that's what Jesus came to create. That's what the life-giving good news the life-giving power of Jesus, what the restoring power of the Holy Spirit does in the world is changes us, women and men from the inside out, changes the character of our relationships, changes the character of our community, and it's supposed to be a witness to the world of a better way, that it doesn't have to be like that, that the what if can come true. Power of Jesus can do this in us, and it would be a truly good and beautiful life. Now I wanna to finish today by reading together the line that we're learning, the core truth that's energizing all the freedom that we're learning about in this series. Can I have those slide up there on the screens? And in just a second, we're gonna read that out loud together, and I want you to just listen to your own words as you speak. Those of you in our traditional service, those of you online, we're gonna all say this out loud together, and I want you to hear these words speaking to you in the temptations that you experience to thingify other people, to know that you are a child of God, and so is she. And so is he. 
And in the temptations and the pressure and the struggle that you feel when you are thingified, I want you to hear these words spoken over you that you are a child of God and all of us together live in the unshakable kingdom of God. I'm gonna, let's, say, let's read this together and then I'm gonna close by praying for us. Let's read. I am a child of God in whom Christ dwells and I live in the unshakable kingdom of God. That's the truth. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, you created us in your image. Male and female, you created us. And although that image sometimes feels so broken, even though we don't see it in each other, you are restoring it in us. And I pray, God, that you'd help us to see that in ourselves, that you'd help us to see that in others, that we would see other people not as things, but as image bearers, as people whom you love, as human beings. And I pray, God, that your Holy Spirit would reach into the places of our hearts that have been wounded and broken, that you would do healing, that you would do restoration, that you would do restoration in our hearts and our relationships, that you would remind us who we are and whose we are and where we live and set us free. Amen.